going to be in Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. I want this morning's sermon to be valuable to us in two uh, main ways. The first main way I want it to be valuable to us this morning is I want us to understand that even though we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and will continue to sin, that we are no longer subject to sin, nor are we subject to it being our master. Even though we sin, even though we, we fall short, we are not subject to sin, nor is sin or Satan our master as believers in Jesus. The second valuable uh, point that I want to try to bring out for us this morning is that I want us to understand from, from Scripture, from Romans, from Paul's argument that is empowered and, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that we are two types of instruments. We are either instruments of righteousness or we are instruments of unrighteousness. And that the determining factor for what type of instrument we are is whoever is reigning in our lives. Whoever is reigning in our lives. Those are the two main things I want us to pull from this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Romans 6, 12 through 14. A little bit of context as you're turning. Paul's writing to the church at Rome around 57 AD under the reign of Emperor Nero. Nero's hatred for Christianity and his persecution of the church is legendary. Nero went so far as to blame the Roman Christians for the fire that destroyed Rome in AD 64. In the book of Romans, we find Paul writing to believers living in a culture that is driven by violence and distracted by entertainment. One that saw Caesar as the ruler of the world. And Paul wants to give Roman believers, a firm grasp on the gospel that Jesus, not Caesar, is the king of kings, that the reign of Christ is the kingdom worthy of total trust, that regardless of whatever persecution comes our way, that Christ is totally worth it and worthy of complete allegiance because he is the Lord of lords. This is the context of Romans. So let's look at Romans 6, 12 through 14. And Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Verse 13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. I want us to notice how Paul uses kingdom language to describe the relationship we have to what masters us. Paul does not say, be careful not to let sin have an influential role in your life. He doesn't say, be careful not to let sin have a significant role in your life. Those words, even though they're impactful and could could definitely be meaningful for us, those words don't get at the, the heart of what sin does 
in our lives. The term reign speaks to what masters you. What has a kingship role in your life? What you see is true, what you see is authoritative, what you see is valuable, beautiful, and worthy in your life. Because the truth is, as I've often said many times, we always obey the master that reigns in our own hearts. We always do this. The big question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is which master is reigning in your heart? Is it Christ Jesus or is it sin that is reigning in our lives? The answer to this question How we answer this question is vital for us because we are encountering a culture today that increasingly resembles a first century Roman culture in many ways. And it can be easy for all of us, especially if we have been believers our entire lives, to perhaps deceive ourselves into maybe professing we follow Christ, but have patterns of thinking, have patterns of living, have patterns of working and raising children that may have little resemblance to the faith that we so confidently profess. This is why being a follower of Christ isn't just about the moment we trusted Christ for salvation, put a period on it. In reality, being a follower of Christ is, has much more to do with the day-to-day, often moment-by-moment decision to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Christ. And, and this is why it is crucial and essential as we move into an increasingly secular culture in our country that believers, especially young believers, know who they are in Christ have an identity in Jesus. Because trust me, friends, internal tyrants, the sin that we have, that we allow to reign in our heart and in our lives, those type of tyrants are extremely hard to dethrone. And if sin is reigning in your heart, it takes nothing short of the power of the Holy Spirit to remove. In fact, it's the only thing that can remove it. Notice that last bit of verse 13 where Paul says how sin makes us, it says it makes us tools for, for purposes for unrighteousness. It's it's why when sin reigns in our lives, it always, always, every single time, it's never not the case. It's why sin, every single time when it takes root in our heart, it takes us further than we are willing to go, further than we want to go, or further than we ever intended to go. Verse 13 says it compels us to obedience by, quote, making us. Y'all hear this or read this in your your copy of God's Word? It says, making us, force compulsion, making us obey its passions. Sin's reign begins by promising us everything our hearts could ever want and more, but it quickly becomes a forceful master to us. We at first when we start dabbling in sin, especially sin that has become habitual in our life, we think that we genuinely have control over it. But like a fire, 
the smallest spark that gets out of the containment can burn the whole house down, can burn the whole forest down. It promises us everything. It promises us contentment. It promises us wealth. It promises satisfaction, feeling great about ourselves, whatever that sin promises us. It promises us everything we could ever want and more. But in the end, it becomes the master that reigns over our life where instead of it giving us something, it takes and takes and takes everything from our heart. And then that, my friend, is when we're in a very, very dangerous position. And it robs us far more than it can ever reward us. And I want us to understand this morning that sin, when it takes root, when it rains, when it has a, has a ruling effect in your life, is nothing short of a cheap counterfeit of the gospel. In Jesus, I want us to understand that we have a rightful king, a human being made in the image of God is tailor-made for Christ to reign in our minds, hearts, and bodies. Therefore, instead of being subject to sin, we are created to live free in obedience to Him. So notice the contrast, friends. Sin's reign, when we, when we replace it with, with the good and the true and the good of, of Jesus reigning in our life, when sin sells us a wholeness that only Jesus can fulfill when sin rain comes in and it, it, it digs an ever-deepening hole in our heart, an ever-deepening hole in our life that we try to fill and just never fill. So it's an ever-deepening subjugation, a bending of the knee to the enemy rather than bending the knee to Jesus. Whereas Christ's reign, Christ's reign is an ever-deepening true satisfaction, freedom, and happiness. Not just put an emotional period on it, but it's an ever-deepening happiness, freedom, and happiness in Jesus, which is far different than emotion. It takes root in our character, and it takes root in our heart. Whereas everything can be going terrible around us, but when we take that satisfaction, that ever-deepening satisfaction by making Jesus our King, He gives us satisfaction, freedom, and happiness, and he never fails to deliver every single time. Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' promise, again, promises us all we could ever want and more, and Jesus delivers on that promise every single time. Jesus never fails to deliver on his promise to be a kind and gentle king whose burden is easy, and yoke is light. He never fails to deliver on this promise. He never fails to deliver that He could give us more than we could ever ask or imagine according to the riches of His grace, not according to the riches of our delusions and our wants. But it's according to His riches and His grace. How we will present ourselves to the world, therefore, is an indication, is a reflection seat like a mirror of what we allow to reign in our lives. Let's follow Paul's, Paul's logic in verse 13. Let's look at it together. 6.13, Romans 6.13, it says this. Gives it in the negative, right? Do not, do not present your members 
to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. There's a, there's a purpose there, presenting ourselves for what purpose? Unrighteousness. But, so he gives an alternative. We're going to change it around and see what we should be doing. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from a, a one condition to another, right? What's the first condition? Been brought from what? Death to the what condition? To life. This is opposite about how it normally works, isn't it? Usually we go from life to death. That's the normal way things work. But here, the supernatural power of Jesus brings us from death to life. And he says, in your members to God as instruments. As instruments for. Here's your purpose, right? For righteousness. Paul explains to the church at Rome that we have a powerful opportunity to affect our homes, to affect our workplaces, to affect our relationships by how we choose to present ourselves to the world. We can either be used as an instrument for the sake of righteousness or for the sake of unrighteousness, depending on who we are allowing to reign in our life. And this is something that we have to keep a close watch on, not just a day-by-day thing, but like I mentioned earlier, it's a moment-by-moment thing because life doesn't come at us in big chunks, does it? It comes at us in moments. Somebody says something to you. Somebody does something to you. Somebody backbites you at work. Somebody gossips about you. And it's in those moments, not those big things that we have to take, like God be with me throughout the week, which that's true but also in the, the small moment-to-moment decisions that we make that dictate how we are presenting ourselves to the world. And it's proof, it's a proof of who is reigning in our lives. For example, I've used this um, analogy before, but I think it's, it's useful to, to use again. Uh, a scalpel, you know, in, in the hands of a skilled surgeon has the potential to heal and to save lives. However, the same scalpel in the hands of someone violent can do incredible damage. Scripture says we are not the wielder, but we are the what? It says we are the instrument for righteous or unrighteousness. The question is, what type of instrument are we? What type of instrument are you? Are you an instrument being wielded for righteousness' sake, Or are you an instrument being wielded for righteousness' sake? And to answer that question, we have to know who is reigning in our lives. Is it the sin that that seems to have a hold on us? Or are we bending the knee to Jesus even when doing so is difficult? Even when doing so requires some really diligent and moment-by-moment prayerful consideration and some Definitely some some submission to the power of the Holy Spirit. Are we allowing ourselves to be used in the hands of the Prince of Peace or by the one who seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy? And Paul writes this in chapter 6 of Romans, knowing full well how tempting it would be for believers in this context when things got really hard for the church in Rome to kind of revert back to Roman ways of living, Roman ways of thinking, Roman ways of interacting with each other. Paul knew how easy it would be 
to go back to a Roman mindset if they weren't consciously giving themselves over to the lordship of Christ moment by moment as instruments of righteousness, especially when their faith put them at odds with the empire and the values of the empire. And friends, the same is true for us today. Absolutely true. It can be extremely tempting for us when our culture in many ways seems to be swaying in directions which reject what we read in Scripture to simply go along with the cultural wind of the day. And this can happen surprisingly quick and swift in our churches and in the individuals of our churches if we aren't paying close attention. Believers are not just encouraged to be instruments of righteousness. We are told how this should look as well. Verse 13 is in thirds. If you look at it, you'll see it's separated by commas. It's in thirds, kind of. If you look at the middle phrase of that verse, we are encouraged to present ourselves, just not willy-nilly, just make up your own version of how that's supposed to look. In what way does it say it? It says we are to present ourselves as those who have been resurrected. That's remarkable. Not just moral people, not just kind people, but resurrected people. A whole new way. We were once dead, and now we are alive. We are totally new people. They, the Scripture says, if anyone be in Christ, they are a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are to present ourselves in a such manner that, that you once, if people looked at your life, they would view you totally different. They would see you as once dead, and now you're so different that you it's as if you went from death to life, which you did. Friends, how are you presenting yourself to God? Your kids, your co-workers, your friends, the world? If it were possible, <laughs> I know this is kind of maybe a silly analogy, but if it were possible, if I had like a mirror, a spiritual mirror that I could put up to your life, would it reflect back the inward truth that God has done in your life? This isn't about putting on a show or faking happiness or faking joy. That's not what I'm talking about at all. It's whether the Holy Spirit's fruits are on display in your life as an act of worship. That when somebody looks at you, there is absolutely no denying that you're alive from the inside out. Again, this has nothing to do with emotions or a bubbly personality, but everything to do with gratitude, patience, authentic Christ-likeness, and love. And the most vital thing is that we are presenting ourselves and our lives to God alone, period. The ESV uses the word present ourselves. But other translations of this verse use the word yield in verse 13, which I think is useful here. To yield ourselves to the purposes of God for righteousness sake. To yield means to stop making your own case or insisting on the rightness of your own way. 
And of course, we want to be living witnesses. Of course, we want our family and our friends and our co-workers to be massively impacted by the gospel. But ultimately, we become instruments of righteousness for Christ's sake by presenting ourselves and yielding ourselves to him alone as an act of worship. Paul says in six chapters later in verses tw- in chapter 12, 1, that we, quote, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So some, and, and this, is, this is important for us to understand because I believe sometimes people may watch your life for decades. You may be living your life like a believer around them for decades. And I say this often, but I'm going to reemphasize it because I think it's important for us to get a hold of. They can watch your life for decades and you can live as a believer in front of them for years. And yet that other person may never come to faith in Christ. Your family may disagree with you about how you live and your coworkers may dismiss you and never give your faith a second thought. But friends, even if, even if no one ever comes to faith because of our lives, that doesn't mean we stop living as believers. We never stop living as believers because ultimately, I'm living for an audience of one. And you should too. We live for an audience of one. We present ourselves to God, as the scripture says, as instruments of righteousness. It's for His sake. And it's for His glory that we present ourselves as instruments for righteousness. And it's why Jesus talks so much about the intentions of our hearts. It's why our private behavior matters as much as our public behavior. It's why our thoughts matter as much as the words we speak. And why our intentions, again, matter as much as our actions themselves. We are not presenting ourselves just to others, in which we are, but ultimately we are presenting ourselves to God as spiritual acts of worship, that everything you do when you go to work tomorrow is not just mundane and meaningless and going through the motions. What you do every single day and how you respond to every single person as you go through the entire day tomorrow and your entire week this week is a spiritual act of worship. And it reflects who is reigning here. And it says in verse 14, let's look at that real quick. It says, for sin, this is why, it says, because sin will have no dominion over you, since you are no longer under the law, but under grace. And I want us to see something very special here this morning. In the first half of this verse, we are given something extremely encouraging from the heart of God. Notice how the verse begins with the word for. You can also read it as because. The Holy Spirit's logic spoken through Paul in verse 14 is that because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we are no longer subject to the reign of sin in our life. It has no say-so on you anymore. And as a consequence... We are no longer subject to Satan. That he is no longer our master. If you are in Christ, you have a different master. You're no longer subject to sin. You are no longer subject to Satan. Instead, because we have crossed over from death to life, we are now instruments 
wielded by our Creator for His purposes, instruments who are absolutely free to love and live for Christ, who will never cast us out. Therefore, because of all that is in verse 12 and all that is in verse 13, we have the promise from God in verse 14 that sin no longer has dominion over you, that Jesus has bought you with a price. Again, kingdom language, dominion. He says sin will no longer have dominion over you. Dominion is a place where a king rules. It's their territory where they have full authority to do as they please with their property. God says that through Christ Jesus, my son, what was once the domain and dominion of Satan is now the sole domain and dominion of Christ. Friends, sin no longer has any dominion, privilege, say-so, or right over your life if you are in Christ because you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own, again, for you have been bought with a price. But this is not where Paul concludes. Paul gives us a little bit of clarity here, and this is where we'll end. Paul clarifies to any naysayers who still wish to think that one can earn their salvation and their favor with God, that we are no longer under the law, that we don't have to obey a certain amount of rules to gain His favor, but we are under grace, that Jesus paid it all and all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He had what? Washed it white as snow. It's, a found, it's the foundation of Paul's argument. That sin will no longer have any dominion over you. Why? Because of the grace of Christ. It's by His shed blood on the cross that we are free to live under the rule of our good King. It's in His victory over sin and Satan that we are free to be instruments used for His good purposes. And it's in Him that we have an unshakable promise that sin will have no longer dominion over us because it's in Jesus it's in Him who seals our faith. And so as our team comes to lead us in a song of response this morning, if you're sitting here this morning and you feel perhaps the Holy Spirit stirring in your life, could it be that this morning you've come to understand yourself as an instrument in the wrong hands? Could it be that you realize this morning that you've believed your entire life that you've had a relationship with Jesus, but now know that you need to go from one state to another, from death to life? Could it be that you're tired of the way you've been living and know you need a new and better king? This is you. I want to ask you to come forward this morning. And if you don't feel comfortable coming by yourself, grab a friend. Ask him to come with you. Ask him to come to the front and pray with you. This moment is for you. It's not just the moment before we conclude a worship service. This is a moment for us to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing in our life. Perhaps this moment and this morning, you've been walking faithfully with the Lord for decades. 
but never really let it sink in here and here that you have a promise, an unshakable promise from Christ himself that sin doesn't have to dominate your life and you want to be free from that weight that you've been carrying for so long. This morning you come too. If you're feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit inside of you, you don't know quite what that is, but you know you need to respond. You need to make something right. You know you need to take action because of what you've just heard. That means you need to repent. That means to turn away from your sin and turn toward Christ. Know that you're not here by accident either. Could it be that God has you here right now for this very moment? So let's stand and sing as the team leads us in a song of response. And you let the Holy Spirit do a work in your life this morning. Let's pray.